Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. And now, Saints. Today is our concluding episode for this series, and I'm excited to have back the senior story editor with the Saints Project, Scott Hales. Hi. And also, again, our good friend, Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. Hello. Thank you both for being here with us today. Our episode today is really a little bit different than some of the ones we've done in the past. We've concluded the book in uh, last week's episode, and today I just want to talk a little bit about what we've learned, what's coming next, and get some insights from from Scott. So, Scott, let's start with kind of the writing of this project. What was this like for you and for the others who who worked on it? Well, it's really a, a an exciting project to work on. Uh, I, I think, you know, when people ask me what it's like to to work on this project or to 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 kind of craft the narrative history of the church. I, I think about uh, what Oliver Cowdery said about translating the Book of Mormon with Joseph Smith when he said that these were, were days never to be forgotten. And that's kind of how it feels with me, feels, uh, for me is, is I, I sometimes have to pinch myself when I realize how cool it is just to come to work every day. And I, this may sound boring to some people, but this is really fun to me. As you, I, I come to work every day and, and I, I look at documents, I sift through documents looking for stories, and I... I have kind of the big picture in my head. I know what the story. I know what the big story is that we need to tell. But I, I'm really hunting through the documents, looking for specific stories that will help us narrate the bigger picture. And that that's so fun to me. Just to, I mean, there's something really special about beginning a document, reading a document for the first time, when you can almost hear the voice of the person writing it, and things just begin to come alive, and the story begins to unfold. And it's an exciting thing. I love it. Was there a particular story like that that um, you'll always remember discovering or learning about? Yeah, uh, not so much with the, with Volume 1, because I feel like with Volume 1, we, we know the story pretty well. I mean, this is the story that we've been telling since the, the beginning. Uh, you know, with some, we have some, we're bringing new insights and whatnot, but what's been really exciting working on subsequent volumes is just so much discovery. Discovery happens every day where we're finding things, documents that people probably haven't read too closely since they were written in the 1850s or the 1860s. And, and lately I've been going through the, the letters of Martha Ann Smith, who was the younger sister of Joseph F. Smith. So this is the youngest daughter of Hiram and Mary Fielding Smith. And she was just a fantastic writer. And she began writing letters when she was, uh, uh, I think, about 12 or 13. And uh, it's just been fascinating to, to read, to kind of see her family story unfold through her eyes, um, and also to read the letters written by Joseph F. Smith when he was a teenager and their older brother John uh, and older sister Sarah. Just kind of getting to know Hiram Smith's children has been really, really fun uh, as I've been working on Volume 2. And, and there are other examples as well, but they're the ones that have I, I, f- I feel the closest to now. We should let our listeners know that as we record this, um, as you mentioned, you're kind of deep in the middle of Volume 2. Yes. Volume 2 will be released in the fall of 2019 uh, after this podcast concludes. And uh, we'll have much more to say about that uh, later. But I, I love the little tease there of the great I'm stories that are coming <laughs> in, in Volume 2. 
Scott, there were there were lots of different people. Um, I, I I guess I don't know. I've never uh, written a history of a church other than working on this project with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it would be like to have just you know three people in a room work on this. There's lots of people involved for a variety of reasons. Can you help our listeners understand what was it like working on this? Who who are all the people involved and and how did it you know sort of come to be in the end? Yeah, so it, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. We we have a pretty small team working on this. Uh, Steve Harper, who's been on the show before, I think I think most of the people on the team have recorded podcasts at some point. But he he's you know our, our our managing historian. He's really the one who helps us. He and the other historians, Jed Woodworth and Lisa Tate and Matt Grow, they they kind of are in charge of the historical interpretation. Uh, they give the creative writing team, my team, kind of a direction on where to go to look for stories. And, and usually what we do is we sit down, historians and creative writers together. We just brainstorm, and the historians say, well, we need to cover this, that, and the other. And, and sometimes I'll, I'll be like, well, I think it would be really great structurally if we could do this, you know, have this mood or have this sort of event happen right here. Uh, I'll say, do we, you know, know of anything in the history that will help us kind of accomplish that? Accomplish that mood or that that, uh, you know, is there a way that we can finish up the story arc? And uh, the historians were like, well, I don't know, but we can look. And, and I've always been uh, impressed by what we're able to find and, and how stories will come out of the archive, come out of the blue, and just kind of fill in the gaps that we need. And be able to flesh out our narrative that way. But but we sit together, we brainstorm. It's a very creative process. Uh, it's a very prayerful process in, in many ways. And you don't think that historians and creative writers should work as well as we do together, but we do. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I've, I've found that there are two very different kinds of people, but we've been able to find a nice synergy on our team. And There's a lot of camaraderie there. A, I lot, can, of, yeah. a lot of it, yeah. And yeah, and it, it's it's coming together, and I can only say that the Lord's behind it. I mean, he, it, it's it's uh it's an amazing experience. One other aspect that our listeners might be interested in is as we rewrite our history, we have this new history. There are other publications from the church, manuals, curriculum, seminary, and institute lessons that could benefit from using some of this new material. Um, for example. I don't remember when I went through seminary and institute ever learning about Amanda Barnes Smith, and mm-hmm. I didn't learn anything about Phoebe Woodruff, and I I didn't really have any idea about some of the the miraculous healing events that took place, and perhaps they were there and I just missed it. But with saints now, some of these stories are a little more available. How have you guys worked with other groups at the church headquarters to make sure that these stories make it into? lessons and curriculum and so forth mm-hmm. well from the very beginning at least as far as as long as i've been on on the team it, it has always been that we've wanted uh saints to be used in in institutes uh with church education that sort of thing and so we've worked over the last couple of months possibly last couple of years we've been working pretty closely with institutes the uh, uh, the curriculum writers and institute uh, talking about what you know what what are their needs in the classroom what sort of thing would they like to have they they give us feedback on on the sort of thing that they would like to see in the history and so we've we've counseled together with them and and they review our drafts and we review their curriculum and just to make sure that we're we're producing the right kind of material for 
institutes and for seminaries and for the youth of the church. Uh, so we've been working pretty closely with them. And in fact, there the there are new yes. lessons, yes. new courses that are coming that are based around saints mm-hmm. um, that uh, will start to roll out in institutes um, as well as at BYU and and through seminaries. Yeah, and I imagine that you know when we when the rotation in Sunday school comes around to Doctrine and Covenants again, I would not be surprised if if it's part of that curriculum as well, although I'm not sure if that's in the works. But I think Saints is really designed for church members. It's, it's, it's meant for instruction as well as entertainment. And uh, I think that it's the sort of thing that you will see a lot uh, in the future in church settings like a Sunday school class or a seminary class or an institute class. Um, Scott, in the process of of working on this project, what new things have you learned? How has this kind of changed your view of the history or even changed your life? Well, it's kind of funny because when I came to this job, you know, my background is in English and in American literature. And, you know, before I was on this project, I, you know, I was doing graduate work and I was actually studying Mormon novels. That was kind of my field of study. So I thought, and, and it was really kind of the work was really historically based. And so I came to this job thinking that I knew a lot about church history, especially the early years, uh, the, the years covering volume one. And I just remember when I got here and started talking to other historians and other people on the project, I realized that I was a, uh, I was not as well-versed as I thought I was. <laughs> and so I had a lot to learn as well. But I think the thing that I have been most excited about, or what I think is most exciting here with with Volume One, one of the things I learned most is, or enjoyed learning, was the about the Council of Fifty. So the Council of Fifty was this this council that that Joseph Smith organized. It had both church members, but also um, people from outside the church, and and really it was meant to to be a council where they discussed the political kingdom of God and that sort of thing. But it was also instrumental in in helping the saints plan the. Uh, the trip west. It was instrumental in helping kind of organize uh, Joseph Smith's presidential campaign. But what's really neat is when you, and, and, and for the longest time, the Council of 50 Minutes were closed that, you know, historians weren't able to look at them up until recently, uh, up until they were recently published by the Joseph Smith papers. And so when I first got on this job, they handed me the unpublished transcripts of the Council of 50. And I was like, wow, I'm looking at something really cool here. And, and they said, let's see if there's anything that we can use here in the, in the new history. And so I, I went through it, and, and I was really, really impressed by some of the stories I was able to find there. And the one that I think uh, impressed me the most, and it's in, the, it's in volume one, is, is there's a moment where Joseph Smith is speaking in defense of religious tolerance. And what he says there is really profound. Is he's speaking to the Council of Fifty, He says, when a man feels the least temptation to such intolerance, he ought to spurn it. He says, in all governments or political transactions, a man's religious opinion should never be called into question. A man should be judged by the law, independent of religious prejudice. And you see, he's he's saying this, uh, you know, his feelings were born out of experience. I mean, he had suffered years of religious intolerance. And he felt that all people deserve the right to believe as they wished. There's a great detail in the in the. Council of 50 Minutes, where he's, he's giving this really passionate defense, and in his hand, he's holding a ruler, and he keeps, right. he keeps swinging it back and forth, almost like a schoolmaster, or it's almost like he's, he's wielding a sword, and he becomes so emotional that he breaks it, 
And it's it's kind of funny because when he breaks it, Brigham Young makes a joke about he goes, so, so might every tyrannical government be broken before us. And mm-hmm. I think that's so revealing because you see Joseph Smith's passion, how, how passionately he feels about this issue. But you also get a insight into Brigham Young and the quickness of his mind and his humor and his wit and, and his, uh, his feelings as well. And I think, you know, that's something I, I did not know before. I did not know about the speech. I, I didn't really know much about the Council of 50 Minutes. And now it's in the history of the church. We can all benefit from that message, which I think is, is perhaps more relevant today than ever. That is a pretty incredible moment. I love that too, because this idea, well, once we see their kind of private meeting minutes, yeah. that perhaps it's going to be super focused on protecting the church and the church's people. And yet Joseph is talking about being tolerant of other religions and how critical that is, like you say, being born out of experience. It's amazing once we actually got access to those. And I'll remind our listeners, you can go to josephsmithpapers.org and you can actually see the minutes, the full transcriptions. They're all published and freely available there as well. Yeah, I, I was really impressed just by the fact that it was very important to him that the Council of 50 was not just a council of church members, but a council of the whole community, or at least with community members in it. And uh, it's, it's, fa- it's a fascinating read. So, Sarah, you asked uh, Scott what he learned. What did you learn as we've been reading this book together? Um, I've learned so many things. I don't know that I could uh, put it succinctly. So I'll just say that my experience with it has been so enjoyable. And I think that's because the narrative, of course, includes rich details that I just haven't heard of before. And that maybe I would have discovered if I had been diving into the history myself. But I'm so grateful for this uh, narrative that has really brought to light some things that I wouldn't have known about. And that happened for me even in the first couple of pages when, um, or, or chapters when Joseph Smith describes his experience with the first vision. And of course, that's a story that I've known for a long time since I was very young. But it was there. I remember there was even a detail about the way that he asked his question, and I hadn't realized that his question to God, that first prayer that he had uh, offered, it was m- even more simple than I had realized. And in that moment, I thought, "Oh, that's that helps me to know a little bit more about him, and even feel a little bit more like him, or even a little bit closer to him." And so the whole book for me has been full of experiences like that, where I realized that the people that I'm reading about who lived so 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 long ago it seems, are actually pretty similar to me in some ways, and I can learn a lot from them. So it's been really wonderful to read that way. Cool. And Ben, you have been interviewing (laughs) historian after (laughs) historian and writer after writer. What have you learned from this experience? That's a fair question. One of the things that I've enjoyed is learning details and meeting kind of heroes that I didn't know before. So I've always loved Lucy Mack Smith, but I just, she is so awesome. I, she's spunky, she's faithful, and she's just putting up with no bull from anybody. You know, whether it's the wagon getting taken away and she, she goes in the bar and, you know, takes on this guy who's going to steal their stuff or rebuking the saints and saying, hey, if the Lord wants this ice to part, it'll part. And then crack, it does, and away they go. And, and then... You know, the closing scenes where where Lucy is there with her two sons and she's lost her husband. I mean, they're just, it's just powerful. I feel like I got to know her um, through this story. And people like Amanda Barnes-Smith and her faith after losing her husband and the healing of her son at Hans Mill. And I guess 
it just becomes so much more real to me after reading Saints than it ever was before. Even though I knew a lot of the facts, okay, I knew that I knew they got pushed out of Missouri. I didn't know how brutal it truly was. I, I knew that like Nauvoo got became a city at some point. I didn't realize like it was miserable for for the first little bit with just malaria and all those kind of details just makes me feel closer to them. And it helps strengthen my faith as I watch the faith of our ancestors. One other thing I have to tell you that I've enjoyed is I kind of got to meet some villains along the way. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if villain is the right word, but I've under—I've got to understand. I, I think there are some people in the history <laughs> who can count as villains. <laughs> there are a few, you know, like I remember when I first read about Grandison Newell and I was like, man, this guy, like, what is his problem? Why won't he leave them alone? He's, He's literally buying up stock to sink the Kirtland Bank, you know, and he's just so agitated and angry. Um, you know, he's, he's funding. And, and I have to tell you this one other thing. My family and I have been reading the book together. And I, I have an eight-year-old, and I was telling another person about the book. And my eight-year-old said, oh, dad, don't forget to tell him about Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. <laughs> <laughs> because he thinks the name is so funny, you know, and he's he's a, like one of my villains that uh, qualifies as a villain for me. You know, he's excommunicated and writes a uh, anti-Mormon book. But knowing who those people were, it also helped it become more real to me. You know, there really were people that were antagonistic. It wasn't just this kind of faceless mob. That's what it was to me before. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh, there's a mob. Well, no, they're they're like real people with real names. And knowing that story also um, helped make the history more real for me. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I have, I, I don't know if a lot of fun with villains is the right word because there are some really despicable people in this book. But uh, it, it is, from a storytelling perspective, it's always important to have a strong villain because when you have a strong villain, you can, that accentuates the good qualities of your heroes. And I think that we see that quite a bit in the book where, where when, when uh, these villains come out, that's when we really see the heroic, heroic nature of Joseph and others really begin to shine, I think. You see the, the descent and how Joseph has to deal with that and, and even family conflict. I mean, heavens, William Smith. Sure, like, sure. He just at times makes my head spin. He, he and Joseph have this argument. and like All those little details just, again, made it real for me. Yeah. So that's been really fun. Scott, you've had some experiences over the last few months in meeting students and others who've who've read the book. What are, what's been the reactions? I mean, it's a little a little uh, early here as we yeah. record this, but what do you think people are getting out of it? Recently, we we were able to go up to BYU Idaho. Uh, Elder Cook gave a devotional on saints right. and other projects that the department's doing, and. And so it was really kind of neat to be sitting in the massive auditorium they have there. I think it seats about 12,000 or more students. And just to hear Elder Cook endorsing saints and encouraging them to read it and then talking with some of the students who, who had read the chapters. Uh, one young man, we, we did a focus group where we talked to a group of students up at BYU-Idaho just about their experiences just so we can gauge what we're doing right, maybe what we need to improve on. And uh, he, he came up afterwards and, and told me that uh, he's a convert of the church uh, from California and has always wanted to kind of know more about Joseph Smith. And, you know, he said that for a long time he was just reading um, Joseph Smith history and, and the Pearl of Great Price, and, but he, he wanted more, didn't quite know where to go. But 
he said that as he was reading Saints, that, that Joseph Smith just came alive for him and that it was a really positive experience for him, that he was trying to get his roommates to read the chapters, and he was really excited about it and, and grateful for the work that we're doing. And a lot of students that we talked to there had kind of the same reaction. We, you know, we have talked to, um, you know, there, there have been some academic readers who, who have, you know, maybe expressed concern about the readability. They may, they may feel like it's written too simply, um, maybe not sophisticated enough as far as the, the writing goes. And, you know, we're, we're trying to, to write for a, a general audience. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that I, I tell people is, you know, this is for, you know, saints from ages 12 to 112, all educational backgrounds, all experiences. Uh, and it's, it's a story that I want my kids to know before they have a 12th grade reading level. And as I read the book, I think that we've, I, I think that we've hit a good sweet spot. I think that, that it is simple, but it's simple by design because we want people to read and understand our history. Yeah, and I've often told people that the language may be accessible or simple, but that doesn't mean that we avoided the topics in a simple way, or we yeah. treated the topic simply. And in, in fact, our listeners have heard me say this over and over again. I just remind them, you know, go to the footnotes, check out the topics, review the primary sources. This is a multi-layered history for for those who do want to dig in, you know, past the, the story. There's just so much more to explore and to learn. And, and it was done that way on purpose, not only to make sure we could reach the audience, but we have to remember we're a worldwide church, and this mm -hmm. book has been translated into 14 languages and, as you said, goes out to a variety of folks around the world with different education levels, and, and they're just as important as our you know, Mormon scholars along the Wasatch Front. Mm -hmm. In fact, Heavenly Father loves them just the same. <laughs> yeah. So they deserve the history just as much as, as anyone else does. Yeah, and it's been kind of an interesting process. So when I, when I first came on to the project, the style, the voice, the tone of the book we hadn't quite settled on anything yet. And they just told us, uh, Rick Turley, who, who, who was in charge of the project at the time, said to the creative writing team, I want this book to sing, whatever that means. We weren't quite sure, but, but the idea was that, you know, it needed to be something that was both literary but also historically accurate. And, you know, so we, we kind of tried some, some literary pyrotechnics, you know, using figurative language and other things that kind of make writing beautiful. And uh, the more we thought about who our audience is and what our audiences need, the more we realize that, you know, there are certain things like metaphors and similes that may not translate across all cultures. And so we, we began to cut back on the figurative language and kind of the other pyrotechnics in the writing to, to create a more universal style and a more universal voice. And I think it's worked out pretty well. Uh, it, it's just very interesting to me just to see how that evolved very slowly. The more we thought about our audience, the more we realized what the book needed to be. And uh, our listeners, if We'd love to hear your feedback on what your experience has been as you've read Saints. Um, you can go to saints.lds.org, and if you scroll down to the bottom, you'll see links to our Twitter feed, our Facebook page, and other ways to contact us on social media. We'd love to, to hear what, what you've had as your experience as you've read this volume. So, Scott, you mentioned that you're working on volume two right now. Yes. What more can we expect from this Saints project? So yeah, so I'm right in the middle of volume two. I am I am loving it. It's it's uh, such a fun era of the church because, uh, you know, with volume one, the the saints, 
pretty much stay all in one location or maybe two locations in some way. We have some missionaries going off to, you know, the South Pacific and, and there are other missions happening in England and that sort of thing. But by and large, we, we kind of have a very narrow setting and it's very, you know, the geographically, it's, we, don't, we don't go very far. But with volume two, the saints are going throughout the world. You know, missionaries are spreading uh, the gospel uh, all over the place. They're going to Europe. They're going back to the, the South Pacific uh, they're going to Hawaii, they're going down to South Africa. They're actually going all across the world, uh, Asia, whatnot. And so we have so many different settings, so many different characters. Plus, we got to keep up with what's going on in Utah. Uh, and so it's just, it's been a huge challenge trying to maintain control over this unwieldy beast that is <laughs> the church in <laughs> the 19th century, uh, this, this volume two era. But, um, it's like like most sequels. It begins right where volume one leaves off. Readers who are fans of Addison and Louisa Pratt are they're wondering what happens to them because we kind of just leave them at the end of volume one. Addison's in the South Pacific. Uh, Louisa is starting west. What happens to these two? These two do they ever get back together? Well, we continue their story uh, in quite a bit of detail in volume two. We meet uh, other people. Like I said, we meet Joseph F. Smith and uh, his brothers and sisters. So we continue the story of the Smith family. We also learn about Joseph's children, uh, Joseph Smith III and his other sons and his daughter. We meet a young man named George Cannon who uh, all he wants to do is stay home and work his farm and get married and, and just you know build up Zion in the valley. But he gets called on a mission first to California, then then Hawaii, and then he's pretty much being sent on missions for the next decade of his life and, and more. And and eventually he becomes a member of the Quorum of the Twelve and then the First Presidency. And so we get to watch his coming of age and his cool. his adventures as a missionary in Hawaii and, and other such things. And we meet some really fascinating women. Uh, for example, there's a, a Danish convert named Augusta Dorius who comes west and she's she ends up helping to to settle San Pete Valley uh, in central Utah. Uh, she ends up also helping to settle St. George. So we follow her. We also follow her brothers uh, as their missionaries in Denmark. Uh, so it's a very international story that we're trying to tell and and it's it's so much fun. It's it's crazy every day trying to pull the story together, but it's 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 an exciting exciting volume. You know, you mentioned earlier that you felt like you knew a lot about the history the, in volume one. And, yeah. I, and I think probably a lot of our listeners feel like that. They feel like, yeah, yeah, I got the Joseph Smith story. And this volume, I think, is going to be very revealing for most people huge, who read it. Yeah, I think, I think there will be surprises on every page. I, I had a mission companion um, who's uh, young in the faith. And I remember he and I sat down one day and we're talking about Brigham Young. He'd never heard the name Brigham Young. Hmm. He didn't know the saints came west. You know, his faith was in Christ. His faith was in the restored gospel. And his knowledge of church history was just teeny, you know. And I just, I so want to, I want to send this, these volumes. I hope they make it to Elder Pastius. Because <laughs> he, he and I had an awesome chat. And he was like, this is amazing. Nobody told me. I'm so excited for volume two to come out and help our members and uh, brothers and sisters all over the world to gain an understanding of how the church was built up in the Mountain West and how mm. it began to to go to the whole world. 
I, I, yeah, I oftentimes think of church history the way you might. I, I kind of compare it sometimes. You know, learning church history is a lot like looking through an old family album. You know, when you kind of go through, you know, maybe one of your grandparents' photo albums where you see pictures of your grandparents as children or, as you know, you see your great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents and you recognize a certain nose that is in the family or a certain, you know, a certain look in the eye or in the mouth or whatever it might be or a certain way of standing. You begin to kind of get a sense that who you are, what you look like, you know, what your personality is, it has a long, deep history. And I think that's a lot like with church history that there are certain things about the church today that we don't quite know why it is the way it is. You know, why is the church the way it is? Why do we do this? Why do we do that? And we begin to get answers to those questions as we read the history, as we kind of look through the photo album, so to speak, of the church. We begin to recognize certain things that we see in our own religious practices, uh, in the practices of our forebears or the, the beginnings of certain things. And that, that's, that's a fun thing to see as well, is, is to kind of show the origins of the modern church. You know, where, where does the church that we know and love today Where come from. Where all come from. Yeah. Well, Scott Hales and Sarah Eyring, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, all of our listeners, for, for participating with us in this podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you will continue to uh, enjoy Saints. And as I've said before, you can always find more at saints.lds.org. There's lots of topics and videos and follow us so that you can find out when Volume 2 will be coming in the fall of 2019. Thank you for listening. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. 